Hi everybody, Liam here. Before today's show, I just want to let you know that since my historical boat tours of Oakland and Emeryville have been going so well, been having so much fun, that I'm adding another route. I'm uh, still fine-tuning it, but this one will be mostly focused on Richmond. I'm going to do two of those trips in October, and then I've got to take a break for the winter because of the weather, but uh, once things clear up, I'll be doing them again in the spring. However, since the tickets for those first two trips will probably sell out really fast, I'm going to make them available first to my Patreon supporters. Uh, I just want to show some love to the people who support this show and allow me to keep making it. So if you want to be first in line for those Richmond trips, hit the donate link at eastbayyesterday.com. Okay, on to the show. My guest today is often referred to as America's oldest national park ranger, but that's only the latest chapter in her astonishing life. The things that most of us only read about in history books, Betty Reed Soskin lived them. Betty was born in 1921, and one of her closest friends growing up was her great-grandmother, who lived under slavery for the first two decades of her life. Betty's great-grandma, Leontine Bro Allen, was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation when she was 19 and lived to be 102 years old. Leontine lived long enough to see the dawn of a new civil rights movement that her great-granddaughter, Betty, would play a significant role in. When Betty attended Barack Obama's inauguration, she carried a photo of her great-grandma in her breast pocket. And she also carried the memories of all the struggles that led to the election of America's first black president. Today, we're going to be talking about those struggles from working under racial segregation during World War II to dealing with death threats from white neighbors to having her record store bombed and much, much more. And here's the crazy thing. Even though she's turning 98 this month, Betty is still fighting. She continues to give presentations at the Rosie the Riveter National Park that challenge the mythology of the quote-unquote greatest generation. And let me tell you, her talks are always packed for a very good reason. You'll see why in a minute. But before sharing the interview, I just want to let you know there's a new documentary about Betty called No Time to Waste that's premiering this month all throughout the Bay Area. I'll throw up some links to those screenings at eastbayyesterday.com. Oh, and she also published an autobiography last year called Sign My Name to Freedom. And she's releasing an album of her music very soon as well. This woman has an incredible amount of energy for somebody her age. Uh, as you'll hear, she barely even lets me finish some of my questions before jumping in with her thoughts. Folks, it's my great honor to share with you now my conversation with Betty Reed Soskin. Betty, first of all, I know that we're recording this interview a few weeks before your birthday, but it is later this month, so I did want to preemptively wish you a happy birthday. 
Thank you very much. 98, that's a pretty big deal. Well, I'm hoping to slide by this one, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's turn it back a little bit and uh, start at the at the very beginning of even before your life. Let's, let's talk about your family and your ancestry, because I know that's something that you're really um, fascinated by, and you cover it in such incredible detail in your book. And one of the reasons why your presentation at the Rosie the Riveter National Park is so powerful is because you weave your personal history and your family history in with all these events that happened throughout the 20th century in the East Bay and in Richmond and, and across the United States. And one of the one of your relatives that you talk about in that presentation is your great-grandmother. Yes. And I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about who she was and your relationship with her. Uh, she's been the guiding force in my life. All of the significant adults in my life had been raised by my great-grandmother. So that meant that she was a huge presence in my childhood. And then when I was in my teenage years, I got to go back as a family delegate to St. James Parish to celebrate her various birthdays so that uh, I actually knew my, my slave ancestor because she was enslaved until she was born in 1846 and enslaved until she was 19. Uh, freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, married George Allen, who was a corporal in the Louisiana State Colored Troops, fighting on the side of the North in the Civil War. Um, I knew her because she lived to be 102 and because she had been so pivotal in my life, so critical as, a, as, as, as the, the elder, um, the matriarch of my family. Um, she has remained um, a guiding force throughout my entire life. One thing that you mentioned in your presentation at the Rosie the River Park was that even though you were raised partially by your great-grandmother who was a formerly enslaved person, you said that you didn't learn about slavery until you read about it in school textbooks when you were a little girl. That's because um, that is, I think, far too painful. I knew that she was enslaved. I knew about her life in slavery through my mother's younger sister, Vivian, who talked about her uh, being a house slave. She and her mother, Celestine, were both owned by the same slave owner. And um, apparently he was a Cajun, Edouard Bro. They married, interestingly enough, in 1863 the slave owner and the slave. Uh, that was Leontine, my great-grandmother's mother, married Edward Bro uh, as soon as the Emancipation Proclamation allowed that to happen. That history is so typical of Southern history. Yeah. And continuing on through your family history, I know you have deep roots in the New Orleans area, in Louisiana, but your family left that region to come out to California. Why did they leave, and what brought them out to California? In 1927, there was a great flood. Uh, the Mississippi, the waters rose, and the um, city fathers in New Orleans bombed the levees to save the Garden District and St. Charles Avenue. And they sacrificed the 7th and 9th wards in the Treme, which was our ancestral home. Sorry for the interruption. I just wanted to jump in to add a bit of context. The flood Betty's referring to 
was the most destructive river flood in the history of the United States. Hundreds of thousands of African Americans were displaced from their homes. The house that Betty grew up in was washed away, and her family lost everything. After that, she came to Oakland in 1927 at the age of six. And my mother arrived uh, to join her father, who was already here. He had settled here in, in East Oakland at the end of the First World War. And um, we came out to join Papa George. And was he the, um, your grandpa that was working at the Oakland Athletic Club? He was the Athletic Club on Clay Street, downtown Oakland, uh, working as a waiter and sharing a little shotgun bungalow out on 75th Avenue out with my mother's two Pullman Porter brothers and a sister. And what was East Oakland like at the time? My grandfather's little house was the absolute furthest west in the entire city. Beyond that house, which was just below the Southern Pacific tracks, everything from there to what is now the Oakland Airport with wetlands, all of it. And um, that's what it was. Oakland was simply two two hangars and a flight school. One thing that you mentioned in the book that is very vivid is how you described that back then Oakland didn't have like a sewage system in that neighborhood per se, no. so that people would just dump their waste directly was, into the bay. It was Depression Beach. You could, you could swim in the waters. What would now be Nimitz, I guess it's Nimitz, that would have been the edge, the water's edge. And from there on uh, was water. And we would swim out there. You could come up with toilet paper on your head. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, no. Yeah, it was, it was oh. crazy. Wow. And so uh, what do you remember about growing up in East Oakland at the time? I remember that the hills used to burn almost every year. You would see fires, but they would be unimpeded by housing because there was so, you know, it just wasn't built up that much. Um, and there's a streetcar down East 14th Street, which is now International Boulevard. But that's we would walk up to East 14th to get the streetcar downtown. Uh, so light rail was also very much important in our lives. Yeah, I, I know that you also mentioned in the book that you uh, enjoyed roller skating down to Lake oh Merritt. Oh, God, yes. We, we, would, we would skate all the way from 83rd Avenue, from 98th Avenue, all the way to the Lake Merritt. Wow. Yeah, that that was that was that was a day's work. As teenagers, we would do that. In her autobiography, Betty writes that after she graduated from Castlemont High, the only job opportunities open to black women like her were basically maid or farm worker. But Betty didn't go into the workforce right away. Instead, she married her childhood sweetheart, Mel Reed, and planned to settle down as a housewife. Her husband, Mel, came from one of the first black families to live in the Bay Area. The story is that they came here during the Civil War to escape a lynch mob. Anyway, when Betty and Mel were still in their early 20s, World War II broke out and everything changed. 
Mel tried to enlist as a sailor, but when he found out that the Navy would only let a black man like him be a cook, he refused. Betty initially got an administrative job with the Air Force, but quit over its segregationist policies. They both ended up getting jobs in Richmond, and even though they were trying to do their part in the great battle of democracy versus fascism, they still couldn't escape institutional racism. Some documentaries about this time portray the shipyards as a place where blacks and whites, men and women, worked happily side by side. This was not Betty's experience. Betty never even got near the ships. So we found ourselves outside, both feeling disloyal to the government, both feeling very challenged, both feeling angry. Mel came back and got a job uh, as an assistant coach at San Pablo Park in Berkeley uh, in the daytime. And in the evenings on the swing shift, he was at the shipyards. And I got a job in a segregated union hall somewhere in the middle of Richmond. So the two of us, for the rest of the war, pretty much, were in those roles. He was working as a helper, trainee, because that's all, that's as far as a, as a black man could go in the labor movement, because this would have been a decade before the labor union was racially integrated. You talk in your presentation about how even though you were working in Richmond during the war, you were never on the waterfront. You never saw the ships being launched. No. I was in a temporary building in the middle of Richmond, nowhere near the shoreline. So I never saw a ship being launched, nor did I ever see a ship being being built. So that that whole history had escaped me completely. If you had asked me at the time, I'd have told you that all the shipyard workers are black. Because the only people I saw connected with the, that work where the people lined up at my window to get their addresses changed. And this is what I was doing on three by five file cards to save the world for democracy. <laughs> and then at the same time, the white women who joined the workforce were able to go into some of those roles um, yes. on the factory floor. Yes, because there were a few exceptions, I'm sure. Most black women were hired as janitors to pick up trash while other people worked until 19, late 1944 and early 1945, though there were some exceptions. But black women were not trained as welders until late in 1944. One of the greatest tragedies I think that's ever happened in the East Bay is the Port Chicago explosion when 320 people were killed and 202 of them were African-American men during that uh accidental, you know, explosion at the at the weapons transfer center. Mm -hmm. You have a very personal connection to that tragedy. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience with what happened back then? This would have predated the racial integration of the USL, United Service Organizations. Long before that happened, the USO was all was all white. They eventually created all-black USOs. But before that happened, we used to entertain the troops in our homes. And um, Mel, because he was uh, working at San Pablo Park, would gather up sometimes on Saturday afternoons 
uh, sailors and soldiers who would be hanging around the park because that's where they would recreate because there was Camp Ashby was right down the street, pretty much. And um, uh, people from, from Port Chicago would be there hanging around the park. And Mel would bring, at that, that was July 17th of 1944, Mel brought about a dozen young men home for a lemonade party, and we would, we'd call in the neighbors, young people, and um, listen to records and talk, and then um, those kids were there until about five when um, they had to get into their Jeeps and go back to Port Chicago. And that evening at whatever it was, 1047, an explosion happened, and we never knew which of those youngsters who had shared that day with us had been saved or which had died. And I'm sort of haunted by that because under those circumstances, you don't get to know people's names. And every time I go to Port Chicago, I search the cell where all the names are carved in and uh, trying to remind myself only one is a name that I remember, and that's Richard, R-I-C-H-E-R-T. But he was only 16, and he had lied to get into the service. And um, I've never known, because there were 22 caskets in which the body parts were gathered up to be interred over at San Bruno Cemetery uh, as unknowns. And I've never known whether Richard was in one of those or whether he survived, but we've never heard anything about it. Ever since. And as you mentioned, um, one of the reasons why there was such a disproportionate amount of black soldiers who were killed during the Port Ex Chicago explosion is because of the segregation that was prevalent throughout the military at the time. Oh, yes. But the outrage about Port Chicago and the black soldiers standing up for themselves and refusing to go back and work in this dangerous, you know, Thank task, you. this was one of the triggers for the eventual racial integration of the military, right? Didn't that help kind of uh, push that after forward? That, by, by executive order, um, President Truman uh, desegregated the armed forces, and that came directly out of the explosion of Port Chicago and the loss of lives and the public outrage. And then even on a, on a bigger scale, there was the double V campaign. Can mm -hmm. you talk about what that was and how you see that as kind of a pivotal moment for launching what eventually did become the civil rights movement that swept across the United States in the yes. 50s and 60s. Uh, there was a columnist, James Thompson, who worked for the Pittsburgh Courier, who was one of the, the major black press. The Double B campaign came, arose from a letter that he wrote that was published by the Pittsburgh Courier that became national. It was double V, meaning victory overseas, but also victory over racism at home, and that blacks should fight for both. And that became a war cry. Uh, it became the, that was where the seeds were planted for what would happen 20 years later in the civil rights movement. That was a start, that double V campaign. There were constantly um, dances and, events to raise funds for the Double B campaign throughout the country, throughout the war. And uh, African-Americans rallied to that cry. 
Because you lived on Sacramento Street in Berkeley and the Santa Fe Railroad passed directly in front of your house back yeah. then, mm-hmm. you literally had a front row seat to one of the biggest migrations of African-Americans to California in history. I was actually wondering if I could ask you to read a paragraph from your books. I think it just does an incredible job of describing what you saw. And then I'd love to, to talk with you a little bit about what, what you say in that passage. Um, let's see here. I think it's page 46. When Mel and I first got married, we lived in a small duplex on Sacramento Street in Berkeley. The reason that is important is that down Sacramento Street ran the Santa Fe rail line in the middle of our street, so the home front was playing itself out right in front of my door. Day and night, there were huge, long trains of people being brought in, mostly from the five southern states, for work in the shipyards. Hanging out of the windows, because at that time the windows weren't sealed in trains, leaning out of the vestibules, waving, getting their first view of California and the Bay Area, and we were sort of the welcome committee all along our street. We would wave people into California. How did that feel at the time to look out your window and just see trainload after trainload of soldiers, and specifically black people, coming to... Uh, moved to this place that had been predominantly white up until then. That was unbelievable. The Santa Fe station was at 40th and San Pablo, so that that train was moving slowly, prepared to be stopped. They alternated between troop trains that were carrying all, all service people and workers who were coming into the area. And since since... The Bay Area was home to 14 shipbuilding enterprises. This meant that people were calling, coming from all over, but mostly from the five southern states, from Mississippi, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana, which meant that we were watching the state of California changing right before our eyes. You talk about how, for example, when you were in Castlemont in East Oakland, there was not that many other black students. You talk about how in East Oakland at the time, the black community was so small that everyone knew each other. So um, what were you thinking when you saw, you know, so many more black people kind of coming here to, to join this community? Did it give you hope that some of the, you know, racism that you'd faced would be that you would have more allies in challenging that or anything? That would suggest that I was a lot more wise or or a lot more socially conscious. Um, I had not, I don't think I saw the racial implications at the time, but I was watching them coming into town. It was that this huge mass of people was arriving and, and my world was changing but I don't think that I saw the people who came in in the Great Migration racially. They were simply strangers who were going to disrupt my life. Yeah, you you write in the book, um, our community physically changed within a matter of months. It's like we'd moved out of the state into another state without ever leaving home. Yeah, absolutely. For instance, the population of Richmond in 1942 was 23,000. By the war's end, three and a half years later, it was 130,000. It's only 108,000 now. Can you imagine what that kind of 
contraction and expansion would have done to the people within it. It's definitely such a transformational period. Um, You know, as long as we're kind of back over there on Sacramento Street, I want to ask a couple of questions about Mm -hmm. the record store. And uh, I love those parts of the book because it's, again, it's like you've lived so many different lives. You've had all these different um, careers and, and, gosh, it's just an amazing book that I I recommend everyone to check out. But, um, okay, so the record store. How did you get into that? Tell me about, like, launching the record store. What was your role? And um... yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Aldo Musso, he was an Italian man who owned the property where our, our duplex stood. Mr. Musso had a jukebox route. One of the things that Mel, who was one of the hardest working men I've ever known, who not only did his his playground director work and his shipyard work, but he also assisted Aldo Musso in distributing to the jukebox route and feeding the records into the places and restaurants and best bistros. It was at that point that in feeding those jukeboxes that Mel began to discover a market that Black culture that had arrived with the in-migration of people, black people from the South, couldn't find their music unless they brought it with them. And under Mr. Musso's tutelage, Mel began to develop sources for bringing that kind of music, the the blues from the South, because we knew jazz. We knew, you know, Sarah Vaughan and Duke Ellington and Jimmy Lunsford and Erskine Hawkins and all those people. We didn't know basic primary blues. He began to discover that and began to discover a market for race records, which was what black music was called at the time. And we began to see a way to make ourselves independent from white folks. And so we had a little duplex that had a double garage downstairs between the two apartments. And it it didn't have a basement. It was almost dug out, just dirt. But Mel began to visualize having a record store so that We could supply that new market that had arrived from the south. We cut a hole in the window of the garage, put a sign out. We had orange crates to hold the albums. They were, of course, vinyl. And the first hit that we turned out was Winoni Harris's Around the Clock. which he talked the disc jockeys at KRE into playing on the air. And, of course, that was very risque at the time. And that very first day, people were lined up around the block. People could hardly find the place because it was so small. Um, yeah, it was just a hole in the garage door. A hole, it was just a, hole, a window in the garage door. And the, the, our cash register was, the, was a cigar box. And the safe was my Bendix washing machine that sat in the back of the shop. And with 
Rick, who we had adopted when he was, it was June 1st of 1945. And with Rick in the bassinet beside the cigar box, we opened and went into business. And I was standing behind that window for several years. Flashing forward a little bit, you, you left the record store for a couple decades when you were living in the suburbs, but then you eventually did come back, and uh, I think yeah, it was the... Health, health this, failed. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you came back in the 70s, the neighborhood had changed a lot, and I know that it was challenging to basically relaunch the record store and get it oh, up and running yeah. again. Can you tell me about that experience was, and also the challenges that... When I came that... back, Mel's health had failed. We had divorced... And um, he was, at that time, an amputee. He has lost a leg to diabetes. Uh, his life had gone into tailspin. And now I understand, but I didn't until a few years ago. Mel had, had played football all the way from high school through Sacramento State, through USF, through the Oakland Giants and the Honolulu Warriors, there were about 10 or 15 years because he played into the professionals uh, just before the creation of the NFL. He was an outstanding football player, but he suffered many, many concussions. And so now I have an explanation for what happened to his life because it really, really went off the rails and our marriage ended uh, and there was no, nothing for me to, to be able to explain it to myself at the time. Um, we lost our home. When I came back to the business, it was in foreclosure uh, because he had not paid taxes for three years. At the time that that I came back, Sacramento Street was completely torn up. The rails, the San Francisco rails were being removed. The tracks were being removed. All of the area was under redevelopment the streets and the sidewalks had been removed and everything was dirt up to the building. And I went there to begin to try to go through the inventory to return it to Elliot Blaine, who had a one-stop in Emeryville. Mel had owed him a lot of money. While I was in there, processing this stuff, trying to box it all up. People were climbing over the sawhorses to get into the building (laughs) to buy records. And after a few days of that, I called the one stop and asked Elliot, told Elliot that the shop had taken on a life of its own and it wasn't depending on me or Mel. That it simply had had become an institution in itself. Right at that point, it had been there for over thirty years, yes. right? And I said, "If you give me six months, maybe I can pull this out enough to be able to pay you back," because he had loaned Mel money to finance a Marvin Gaye concert at the Coliseum, and Mel had had a sellout crowd, but had gone to Reno and lost all of the money on the tables. But it was shortly after that, just a day or two, when Mel completely fell apart. And we found him in a diabetic coma in the back of the store. And I guess all this pressure had just 
finally just gone down on him. And and the drug dealers were lined up along the street because that had become ground zero for between Richmond and and, and Hayward. Um, there was a time when when um, the drug dealers glued barrel bombs to my windows and blew out eight windows. I mean, just eight-foot glass windows. Why did they attack you? Because they had witnessed the police meeting on our second floor with the attendants who were up there, and they they recognized that, and that was, I shouldn't even mention him, but uh, he was running a, a, a jobs program up on my second floor as a renter, and... Um, the drug dealers apparently recognize the plainclothes cops that were up there, and overnight they blew up my windows. And you weren't there, though, during the explosion? No. Wow. That must have been terrifying. Yeah, but I made my peace with those kids. <laughs> so you ended up uh, squashing the beef? You ended up getting along with them in the long run? or No, it was, it was that, that I really had to declare my turf. And they respected that. There would be graffiti on all the buildings around me and nothing on my place. There was a day when I came in and several cars lined up on the street had their windshields knocked out and mine weren't. Mine was untouched. It got so I would I would let those kids see me and cleaning my place and scrubbing it out and sweeping and they got so they respected me, and they would line up at the bus stop across the street at night when I would be there working until 8 o'clock in the winter alone in that store. And those kids would line up to look over me. And if anybody came in that was suspicious, suspicious they would come in and stand in the store with me. So they went from trying to blow up your building absolutely. to protecting you. Absolutely. They would walk me to my car at night. And eventually, eventually, I had those kids with clipboards registering voters. How did you earn their respect and their loyalty? Except that, that it was that I was so much a part of that community. And that store was so much of that community. As I say, it took on a life of its own. It's where the kids would come in with their their their, their report cards, that I could could see them. People would come in with papers they couldn't read, to have them interpreted. Come in to announce that they had a new job or that some they was some there was a new baby, down the street. That that was an institution in the neighborhood, and I and I respected that, and they respected me. And. The record store is closing now, right? It's closing down this it's year. Done its job. It's done its job. Yeah, and and we're ready for it. You know, yeah. it's been seventy-five years. Seventy-five years. Yeah, it's... that's a lot longer than most record stores last. I think it's probably the oldest record store <laughs> <laughs> west of the Mississippi. <laughs> oh my gosh! No, but I mean, yeah, but it but it did what it needed to do. It it uh, it supported us. It worked. It worked for you and for. The community. Yeah, it it worked for me. Well, let's talk a little bit about the kind of origins of your your activist life. First of all, in, I guess it must have been the early 50s, you moved out to Danville, which was essentially an all-white area on the other side of the the hills, the Walnut Creek area. Can you talk about why you and Mel decided to move out there and 
how you even were able to purchase a home out there because I know that there was all kinds of housing segregation in practice at the time. But Mel was playing football for the, for the Oakland Giants. His friends were all moving out there. Mel, as I say, was a third generation Californian. He didn't have any, any reason to not want to be exactly where he wanted to be. We would take out the kids to ride the horses in Danville. Of course, that was all rural. We would pass through Saranac, which was the area between Lafayette and Walnut Creek, and we would pass by this, this lot that Mel began to fixate on. We knew we couldn't buy it because it was in a white community, but it was also an unincorporated area, which we figured was possible. Uh, but we got Lionel Wilson's white wife, uh, Lionel was at that point, I think, a judge. And, of course, he did go on to become the first black mayor yeah. of Oakland. Yeah. But Lionel was married to Dorothy, who was white. Um, she agreed to make the purchase for us and then turned over the deed to us, which we did. And then we found a Quaker architect who was willing to design our house. It must have been extremely difficult to make that transition, not only because of the fact that you were moving into essentially an all-white area, but also that people were threatening you. I mean, at one point, people even threatened to burn your house down, right? We lived for for five years of death threats with three little kids. Uh, That was a very, very difficult period. Where did you find the strength to stand up for yourself and challenge that kind of uh, racism. I really don't know. I, you know, looking back, I have I have no idea why, because I was essentially like all the other women in the suburbs, married to someone who was in the city, making the mortgage payments. My oppression was coming from other women, for the most part. I was a very attractive young woman which meant that I was a double threat. The year that we moved in, my eldest kid was a third grader and was the only black child in the elementary school. And the fundraiser for the PTA that year was a minstrel show, and all of his teachers and the principal and the administrators were in blackface. I had to confront that for mistake of my kids. I did that, but I didn't know, I don't know now where that came from. I don't know. Right, just because I know that a lot of other people kind of organized in sort of civil rights struggles during the area, mm-hmm. during that era were part of, you know, the NAACP or all these other kind of civil rights groups, but you were just I, flying I solo. I was absolutely isolated. I was the target of bigotry, but I also became the target of the liberals. People needed me to validate their liberal credentials. They wanted to be friends with you. Yeah, and so that support grew out mostly of the Unitarian Church out there, uh, religious liberals, and eventually that became my home. So can you talk a little bit about how you transitioned from, as you say, being this kind of suburban housewife into someone who's out protesting the Vietnam War, becoming friends and supporters of the Black Panthers, for example. Tell me about that evolution as an activist and, and in your kind of political awakening. 
I don't know where that where that came from. Um, I think if I at any point in my life had I known what I was facing, I would have been cowed by it. Uh, because I, you know, courage was not a big thing in my. <laughs> well, I find that hard to believe because you know you yeah. stood up in front of a whole room of Absolutely. white people that were saying they didn't want black folks to move in their neighborhood, Absolutely. and you just you know screamed at them and talked them down and told Absolutely. them that you're not going anywhere. Absolutely, but I don't know had I known that that's what I was going to be doing, I could have had that courage. I eventually did, but I was simultaneously working through my black identity because in the 60s I needed to be identified but I was living in the white suburbs and I had to find out who I was in that context. I was not quite white enough for the suburbs and I was not black enough for the black revolution but I was, I was being asked to explain what was happening in the cities during Cadillac Row and People's Park and Vietnam War and all this. Like the white liberals wanted you to be yeah. a spokesperson for your race? And at first I would say, well, how do I know? I mean, I, just, I live out here. I don't care. You know. And then I began to realize that, that I could serve as a bridge and that I needed to have those answers because I was being asked and I needed to inform myself. And for that reason, I was at the induction center in Oakland, protesting the war, I was at People's Park, I was doing all of these things, and also supporting the Black Panthers, because I had this role that I could play, that my neighbors couldn't play, that I could bring back those answers. And that gave me status. That church, in Walnut Creek that I helped to build, actually, from 25 families to what is now an incredible place which double sessions with people, um, that that church funded my national participation in the black movement. I don't think I, I ever did it alone, and I had my doubts, but I think it's where my eventually where my power came from, because I began to learn that there was a role for a middle-class black person that I could be a conduit for power. I could accept the power and place it where it was needed. I could be that bridge, and I was, until it no longer worked for me. And that day came, and I moved back into the city when I realized that when my kids became high school age, that my children were being culturally deprived. You wanted your kids to be around. I wanted my kids to be around, even the urban grittiness. I wanted my kids to have a, a richer cultural life that they were not having in the suburbs. That was just Disneyland with, with mortgages. Besides your political activism, or I guess in conjunction with your political activism, another way that you found your voice was by writing songs and singing and performing. That was, that was a defense. Uh, there was no place to find what I needed to keep sane in my everyday life. If I finally had a mental break um, when my daughter, who was handicapped, was about three or four years old, and spent 
after about two and a half to three years in treatment um, at home. But it was during that period that I became very creative. I began to paint and I began to to write songs and to sing them. Uh, I was doing college concerts and singing at churches and appearing in coffee houses. I didn't ever publish anything, but much of that music is retained on Real to Real, and that music is about to be released now. gather here I feel you near on this beautiful night your hand in mine this simple sign of that was a song called your hand in mine that Betty wrote in 1964 she performed it on stage last year with the Oakland Symphony and Chorus in this next part of our interview, I ask Betty about her role in the development of the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historic Park. It's a really unique institution because unlike most national parks, this one is spread out among separate sites all across an urban area. The reason why Richmond was chosen wasn't just because it was the site of the Kaiser shipyards, but because there are still a lot of World War II-era structures standing here. Anyway, there were all kinds of questions during the early years of the project that had to be figured out, like, how do you work with private landowners who held some of those sites? And how do you represent such a complex history? Fortunately for everyone involved, Betty was there to help. So the planners were gathered here in Richmond to begin to meet with the owners of the said properties and the community to begin to seek the answers to those questions. And it was at that point that I discovered the National Park because I began to attend those meetings in the library as a field representative for the state of California to report back to my assemblywoman and the rest of our field staff of this national park that was created in our assembly district. And I met my first PowerPoint, where there on the screen were the scattered sites that defined the park. And I instantly recognized all of those scattered sites as sites of racial segregation. When I was the only person of color in the room, and I knew that no one in that room knew that but me. And that the home front park was being established to tell the story of Rosie the Riveter as its main theme. And where that's an important feminist story, it was not the only story. That there's a story of 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans who were interned. 70,000 of them were American citizens. The story of Port Chicago, 320 lives lost, 202 of them being black dock workers. The Great Migration out of the southern states, so many stories. And 
I began to realize that if those stories weren't all told, the story would be incomplete. And I began to talk about that. As it turned out, those planners were all graduates of Sesame Street. And they knew that it wasn't easy being green. And they knew that one of these things did not like the other. And that, they, and that they not only were willing, but anxious to know what was missing in their PowerPoint. So, like, for example, you challenge the kind of popular mythology of Rosie the Riveter by explaining that people say, oh, this was the first time women were coming in the workforce. And you say, no, black women had been in the workforce long before that because black salaries were lower than white salaries. So both parents had to work or everyone had to work. Yeah. And our my our aunts and our mothers had been working out since since slavery. We were not emancipated into the workforce right. by the Second World War. So you really challenge that kind yeah. of like white middle class conception yes. of what quote unquote work Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah. But here was a federal agency that was willing to listen. You must be really proud of what the park has become. Yes, I really am. Yeah. I really am. And I now look out and see my fingerprints all over it. <laughs> I bet. Like, so what are some of the parts of the park or like the elements of the museum where you're like, I'm so glad they got that right? You know, so many things had to come together for that. Right. So many things had to come together. Um, the readiness by the Obama administration that set in motion a climate in which this conversation could be held. I don't think that, that this could have happened five years before that. Right, absolutely. I mean, you go into the hallway outside of where you give your presentation now, and there's displays about the contributions of LGBT people during the World War II effort, disabled people, Latino neighborhoods in Richmond, and you just don't see things like that in most national parks. No. No, I am really, really pleased. And then speaking of Obama, you were at his inauguration, correct? Yes. Can you tell me about that experience? You carried a a photo with you that day, didn't you? Yeah, I had a picture of my great-grandmother in my breast pocket so that she could experience that. It's still hard to wrap your mind around the fact that you grew up with this close relationship with somebody who was enslaved, and then within your lifetime, you were there to witness the inauguration of America's first black president. Not only that, but a couple of years ago, I was invited by the, by the Department of Interior to participate in the National Tree Lighting Ceremony with the Obamas and got to introduce the President of the United States to the nation on public television. And there we were, standing on that stage with a picture of my great-grandmother in my breast pocket in the shadow of the the slave-built White House. And here was America's first African-American president. That moment I will never forget. When I went to go see you give your talk a couple weeks ago, there was an older black woman in the crowd who said that she'd been there four times to see you give the same talk. (laughs) And I can definitely understand why people would come back again and again to see you. Yeah, they're, they're going to be finishing my sentences pretty soon. <laughs> well, speaking of your, your role at the park, I hope you don't mind me asking, but how old were you when you were hired on as a park ranger? I first worked uh, as a consultant for, on a four-year contract. Mm-hmm. And then at 85, I became a park ranger 
on a permanent basis. You're an 85-year-old rookie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and well, first of all, um, where do you find that? Deserves that. Where do you find the energy? And uh, yeah, I mean, you just seem like so motivated to keep doing it. Still, are you just as excited to do it now as ever? Yes. I mean, how do you feel about that? Yes. As long as there are faces in that audience who have never heard the stories, then they simply come alive for me. And you like wearing that uniform too, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> because every time I'm in that uniform, I'm announcing to children of color a career path that they might not ever dream of, of, of attaining. And just being in that uniform announces that, that, that career path. And so I just consider it a, a privilege. One of my favorite parts in your presentation is the section where you talk about seeing history as cycles. You talk about how you've been around long enough to kind of see these cycles come and go. For people that are younger than 98, <laughs> what can you tell us about looking at history and cycles? What kind of insight or, or comfort even do you get from looking at history uh, through that lens? I have this sense of patterns that I wasn't aware of moving up through them. But now, after my 90th birthday, I think probably, uh, I began to be able to see the patterns. And I know now that these periods of chaos are cyclical, that they've been happening since 1776. And each time one of these periods of chaos arrives, it presents a time when democracy is being redefined and where we have access to the reset buttons. And it's in those periods of chaos that the giant leaps are taken and that we settle out for a while and then we meet another one. And the one that I remember most clearly is that of the 60s. And now when I look back and realize that I've lived long enough to be aware that I have lived into the future, that along with millions of others, I helped to prepare. And more than that, it's like, it's like we're on, on an upward spiral and we keep touching the same places at higher and higher play, higher levels. And that there have always been those who've been trying to get it right. And history's been largely written by people who got it wrong. <laughs> but were that not true, that spiral would not be upward-seeking. And that that gives me hope for the future. I think that we're in another one of those chaotic periods right now. And that there's nowhere to hide, that, that we have to confront it. But I have no question but that we're going to get through it. I feel like it's so easy to be cynical now when we look around and see all the tragedies and horrible things happening in the news. But then, you know, you refer to this uh, in almost metaphysical terms, this upward, you know, trajectory. And then it makes me think about what you've seen in your life. For example, you write about your relationship with your son mm -hmm. who was gay and how back when he was first coming to terms with that in the 50s, 
homosexuality was just so oh, repressed and just, I mean, really um, criminalized even. And now, um, obviously, there's still a long way to go in terms of, uh, you know, equality. But yes, yeah, same-sex marriage is legal. And just LGBTQI rights have come, you know, so much farther in terms of anti-discrimination laws and things of that nature. So is that kind of what you're talking about oh, when yeah. you're, yeah? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I have no doubt that we are in one of those cycles and that we are going to come through it. Absolutely none. You know, another example that pops into my mind because of the Richmond connection is uh, I've been doing a lot of research on the shoreline recently. And if you look back at the 20th century and the history of the Richmond shoreline, it was really a history of devastation and industrial pollution and just dumping and toxicity. And now it looks better than it probably has in 100 years. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, thanks to all the dedicated people who have fought yeah. to, uh, you know, save the bay and clean it up. Yes. Well, Betty Reese Hoskin, this has been just such an ultimate honor for me. I'm so grateful to you for um, inviting me into your home and sharing your life story with me. Thank you very much for joining me today on East Bay Yesterday. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. If you want to see photos related to this episode or find out about screenings of the documentary about Betty or sign up for my newsletter where I highlight upcoming local history events, check out eastbayyesterday.com. And speaking of events, I've got one coming up on October 9th at the Oakland Public Library. I'll be digging deep into the history of BART with Mike Healy, the man who literally wrote the book on that topic. So if you want to hear about BART history, come out. It's free, and it should be a very good time. Okay, also, massive thanks to the people supporting East Bay Yesterday through Patreon. This podcast can only exist through listener support. So if you want to keep hearing new episodes, please go to my website and throw down a few dollars if you can afford to. Special shout-out to Jay Mumford for the recent generous donation, and the very sweet letter that came along with it. I also want to give a shout out to everyone who's been sharing East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I see all of your posts, and they make me incredibly happy. Please keep it up. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on uh, Spotify, pretty much all the major podcast apps, and wherever you, wherever you get your podcasts. Music for this episode came from local producer... Justin Lee. Thank you, Justin. All right. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.